Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. In today's episode, we'll welcome Matt back from holiday and put him in the hot seat as we reveal the answer to last episode's interactive future or fiction. Also, after a week of government announcements around microsteps for climate action, we're going to be fact-checking the science around some of the things that have been said. And as usual, we'll be joined by a fantastic guest. Rob Saunders is the Challenge Director for the UK's flagship Prospering from the Energy Revolution programme. We'll be chatting with Rob about the innovative work this programme is doing to drive the growth of smart local energy systems, helping the UK on the journey to net zero. You know, we worry, and I, and I know that the regulator and government worries as well, that when we start to change the way our markets work in the energy system, the people that are going to lose out are the people that can least afford to lose out. And as always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go find and follow us at LocalZeroPod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, you can email us at LocalZeroPod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. Of course, it wouldn't be Local Zero without Fraser. So welcome back, Fraser. We've got a lot of fun stuff to do today, and I'm particularly excited to dive straight in with uh, the results from Future or Fiction last time. Absolutely. it's I, I like the thought that Matt has been on his holiday, but the whole time just sweating, knowing that he has to come back to Future or Fiction, that everyone is tuning in specifically for this. So yes, for those who, who don't know, and hopefully they do know because they listened to the episode last time around, we had an interactive future or fiction in, in Matt's absence that the audience could play along to on Twitter as well. So what we're going to do, the way that we're going to run this short segment, is I'll refresh your memory on what the technology was. We'll put the question to Matt, and then we'll reveal the, the results. So Matt, just before we get going, I don't know if this helps you or not, but the Twitter poll is split exactly down the middle wow. okay yeah it's 50 50 that does not help no at all no <laughs> and and i would be lying if i said i didn't check the poll before i came on <laughs> in terms of like it's like who wants to be a millionaire when you say well it could be a or d i'll just, take my 50 yeah. 50 and you're yeah, left with a or d. just a hard stare at chris tarrant that did not help <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so the technology for our interactive episode was called power tip that's power tip so we know that the human body both uses and generates energy but how about this researchers have devised a technology that can harness the power in your sweat to charge small devices like your mobile phone simply wrap the flexible technology around your fingertip before you go to sleep and you can wake up to a full battery ready to tweet and listen to your favorite local climate podcast for the rest of the day matt do you think it's the future or do you think it's fiction? Oh dear. So, I mean, I'm trying to dredge up various kind of GCSE chemistry here, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm sure there's something potentially around, you know, various sort of salts and minerals that we excrete when we sweat and potential, you know, linkages with osmosis. And obviously that has some kind of power potential. I, I doubt it's enough to power something. You didn't go uh, on holiday at all. You've been on like a <laughs> course. So yes, I've had other <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> refresher. Um, so, and I don't know whether there's something kind of loosely related kind of fuel cell technology here as well, but I don't know. It, it feels like, again, like all of yours, Fraser, it could be <laughs> the future, but probably isn't. So I'm, I'm going to go with fiction. Okay, fiction, final answer. So the Twitter poll is split directly down the middle. I would bring Becky in, but she already knows. <laughs> So sticking with fiction, I'm go- I'm, go- I'm going. It's it's fiction. Nobody's really doing this, but there's probably a way of doing it. Okay, the answer is, of course, it's the future. Of course, <laughs> it's the future. <laughs> Researchers at the University of California have designed fingertip technology that harnesses your sweat to power small devices such as your mobile phone. It literally it looks like a little plaster that just wraps on your fingertip, go off to sleep for eight hours, and up you get and your phone's charged. Yeah, it's it's in the works. It's happened. It can charge a phone overnight. Charge a phone overnight, yeah. Mm. As ever, I'll put the link up on the on the website. You can see it. It's all verified. Okay. And I want to do a special shout out to my wonderful mum, who is a listener, an avid listener of the show, because my mum actually found that article and shared it with us yeah. for this week's special feature or fiction. I've also got something to admit to you all, which is that I actually... I actually voted on that poll, so I've uh, <laughs> voted fiction. So I have completely skewed. So it probably wasn't fifty-fifty. The, the, yeah. the people were right. Um, the audience were right. So anyway, so yeah, I've, I've torpedoed our own poll as well. I'm feeling pretty bad about myself. Yeah, double boo for man. <laughs> well, you can't get it right all the time, Matt. But I know you can get it wrong all the you time. You have been. I don't get it. I don't get it right that often either, Becky. To be honest. <laughs> Well, you're much better when you've had your chance to do some homework, yeah. get all the facts, build the case. So, And I know that that's what you've been doing a lot of this week since we've heard about all of these actions around, you know, yeah. not washing the dishes before we pop them in the dishwasher and so on. Never have I come across the word dishwasher so much on social media in a <laughs> single week. Um, so, so those of you who are maybe not aware, the government's COP26 spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, who some of you might be thinking, oh, I, I, I recognise that name, but not in a climate change context. Um, she was initially positioned as the, the government's spokesperson when they put together that quite fancy press conference room. That didn't really end up happening. And subsequently, she's moved into a very important role of being a spokesperson for government on, on all issues relating to COP. And a couple of media articles emerged over the past week. One was picking up on these micro steps, which we'll talk a little bit more about. And uh, Allegra was referencing some of the things that we should all be doing. And actually, the, the sentiment, in my view, was was correct. We should all be making positive lifestyle choices that that you know help to mitigate climate change i think where she, she and obviously the, the, the government were subject to criticism was that the, the suggestions that were being made and i'll just pick out a few here one was obviously hashtag dishwasher uh, don't rinse before dishwashing uh, very controversial in some some dishwashing circles it turns out <laughs> do freeze leftover bread do use recyclable shampoo containers uh, maybe coming in cardboard boxes the one that I thought was spot on, and actually I wish I'd seen a lot more of, was walk to the shops, don't drive, leave your car at home. Now, that was the kind of thing I wanted to see a lot more of, okay? When she was asked, do you drive an EV? Uh, she responded, no, I drive a diesel and EV isn't for me at the moment. The answer being that she makes most journeys over 200 miles or makes a lot over the year to visit family and friends and that the EV car isn't up to that in terms of range and, and the charging network. So. At that point, I was thinking, well, you know, is there some value in some of the statements that are coming out? And again, I think, you know, like was point about the EV network, I was in an EV the other day making a similar journey and it is challenging. I had to stop the car numerous times, ended up charging, you know, probably 50% of the journey, you know, it, the journey became 50% longer. Well, and especially finding a charger that actually works is really difficult. I can't tell you how many challenges we had with that. Exactly, Becky. And you've you've recently gone down the EV route too, right? Yeah, yeah. Charging at home is fine. The smaller journeys, like that's super easy. But, but we also did a trip uh, down to the Lake Districts and really struggled with finding the chargers. And then when we found it, getting them to work. And Fraser, you've, you've got your hand up. Is, have you gone down the EV route too? Well, no, I... I'm I'm a public transport guy, but the 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 thing that bugs me so much about this, right, is going back to some of the other stuff that's dominated the 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 headlines and the Twitter the Twitter debate, is 
you're telling people to just freeze bread and not rinse stuff before you put in the dishwasher, as if that's going to offset your 200 mile diesel trip, however regularly you're taking them. Yeah. I think blowing it completely out of proportions. If no, it doesn't matter that I've got a diesel car that apparently I can't get of it because I take over 200 mile trips so frequently in it that I can't possibly give it up and have a have an EV. And um, But it's okay because I don't rinse the dishes before I put them in there. Yeah. It's okay because there's a bit of frozen bread in the freezer. That's it. And uh, this, this is the issue. So it's about messaging and it's messaging in a cop year from government about what to do and what not to do and what to prioritize. So let's just take it at, at face value that not rinsing your dish, uh, your dishes before the dishwasher is a good idea. Well, I'm sure you've done the sums, Matt. Is it is it a good idea? Well, spoiler alert, and I'll fill in the details. Well, yes, but it's going to make you know microscopic difference to your carbon footprint. There's a really interesting article from the Big Issue, which we'll link to on the pod. And Fraser, um, I don't know whether they've me off. they've pinched our name or you've <laughs> pinched theirs, but their thing was called Big Issue Fact or Fiction, right? And this was testing the statement that rinsing the dishes makes a difference or not. Well worth a read. Um, I think the point is, you know, yeah, it does could potentially waste a lot of water, but how does that translate into carbon emissions? And is it something that government should be saying that we should be prioritizing as a micro step? Back of the fag packet calculations, and again, I'm happy to share these on the website and people can pick them apart as they see fit. If we were to do that, um, various assumptions, if you do, it's kind of three times a day running the tap for about a minute at a time. It would account for about 0.02% of the average UK carbon footprint. Yeah, not much. Now, when we start to think about the carbon emissions from flying, from transportation, so- but Hang on, just to, let's think about the emissions about what's put on the plate that you're washing, right? So oh, of this, course, is, yeah. this is one of the biggest things that you could do is think about what you're eating and how that contributes. And, you know, this is not saying everybody needs to become a fully fledged vegan and never eat meat or dairy ever again. But just swapping out a few meals, having more plant-based food, I mean, that is one of the biggest things that you could do on an individual level that can have a real impact on carbon emissions. So that was where my thinking kind of went to next reading this article is, well, what should we be doing? You know, this is the stuff that government should have been announcing that we should be focusing on. So there's a fantastic paper um, from colleagues at Leeds, even over um, another colleague of mine, uh, John Barrett. And again, we'll link to this, which did a, a meta-analysis, a kind of systematic review. And for those who aren't kind of in academia, it means a review of all of the, the kind of articles out there that looked at the carbon emissions, uh, mitigation potential of different measures, right? But the top 10, I'm going to ask you to, what do you think was in there? Top 10 individual lifestyle kind of behavioral changes that we could make. What, I'll, I'll ask for three from each of you and see if they make the top 10, okay? So what would the biggest average carbon reduction potential? Who would like to go first? I'll go first. Go on, Fraser. So I think food is going to be one of them, right? I think ditch the car, so cycle or walk more where you can. Uh, switch out your light bulbs is one of the things that I'm sure is going to be up there. Hang on, that's already three, Fraser. I will take your first three. Okay, fine. Yeah. Is this what we think are the biggest things or what we think people think are the biggest things? Yes, I, that made the top 10. Okay. That made the top 10 things that we could even individually do. Oh, okay, that's, that's what I final. thought was going to appear on a, on a silly list. This is what we actually think you could do. Yeah, the things that you, if, if you were to hazard a guess at the top 10, um, and, and Fraser, they're not daft. I mean, what you've suggested there, you've said food. So coming in at number seven was a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. Live car free. No. Drum roll, please. Number one. Yeah. Number two was, was shift to battery electric vehicle. Huh. And number five was shift to public transport. So they're all kind of related. Oh, okay. okay. Light bulb. You could put that under another category, which I'll come back to. I'm going to pause and ask for Becky. Is there anything else that you think should be making that list? Well, so, yeah, probably. So clearly there's got to be something in there to do with flying and not flying, flying less, whether that's work or... Ding, that's number yep. three. That's <laughs> one less flight a year, mm -hmm. long haul return. That's number three. So two others that I can give you. One has got to be to do with getting off gas. Yes, you, that comes in at number 10, renewable-based heating. Mm. Okay. Any more for any more? Yeah, not having kids uh, or a dog. Isn't on there, but actually would be perfect. Be yeah, there. because all of you would then tickle all 10 at once. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> 
That would have been really good. So was it like um, an insulator loft or something? Uh, well, there's a couple, there was one here which was improved cooking equipment, which I didn't fully understand. Refurbishment and renovation, which is where the light bulbs possibly mm. comes in. Number four was renewable electricity. So focusing on on yeah. uh, you know basically purchasing power from there. So I'll just end on this very quickly. These top ten measures together, on average, could yield mitigation potential that means an, an average carbon reduction of 9.2 tons of co2 equivalent per per person many of you will be saying right what does that mean well in in context the current f- uh, carbon footprint for the average uk person according to pawprint which uses uh, modeling from Berners lee and others is about 12.7 tons wow so you could reduce roughly and it's roughly about 80 percent, give or take and you'd get the calculator out but it's it's roughly that for those ten, ten measures, Fraser. I think that's that's interesting, and I've always I'm always a, a big advocate on doing doing what you can, leading by example, making if you can afford to to implement these measures, then absolutely. What frustrates me is when we talk about individual action, when we talk about lifestyle choices, it's difficult to feel like when you're making those little choices in your life, and you see, for example, the Cumbria coal mine being opened or Campbell mm-hmm. being sort of under under debate just now. Fossil fuels generally, when you see the Gulf on fire and you're thinking, yeah. okay, but it, but it's fine because I now- I'll change my light bulbs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's difficult. And I, I think <laughs> yeah. that's not a reason to not do those things, but I think it's a reason to think more holistically about what individual action is. So for my money, getting involved in your community, getting involved locally, yeah. talking about it, outreach, education, joining a campaign, voting. These are all massively important actions because you need to build a broad base of active support to hold leaders to account on on their actions as well. So individual action, important in all levels, but I would argue important not just to think about the lifestyle consumer choice side of it as well. Spot on, Fraser. And, and I got, let's say, if I might, may add one more, uh, well, there's a couple more, but if I may add divestment from fossil fuel, mm-hmm. where you put your money is so key. Yeah, yeah. What frustrates me sometimes is the way we have this kind of, what I see as a false dichotomy in the conversation of, you know, infrastructure change that's done by the big companies or, you know, policymakers or what have you versus individual action, individual behavior change. And we sort of see individual action or behavior change is something that happens is separate to that. And actually that's that's a load of rubbish because it's so embedded in the context in which we live our lives. So your ability to walk or to take public transport or to get out of your car is very much governed by all of the other things that are going on in your life. Like, is there that public infrastructure there? What opportunities do you have from that? How does your work support you in being able to adopt some of these things? you know, eating a more plant-based diet, how do you, how does that integrate with the way in which your family operates? So I think that, and, and I mean, the heating one that we could, we could talk, well, we have done two entire episodes yeah. on heating because it's not just about individual choices. It's about the, the market being there. It's about yeah. the, that kind of, you know, is there a local heat network planned or are there national decisions being made? So, you know, actually, and this is where I think the conversation that we're going to have with our guest today is going to be absolutely from in my mind on the money because what we need to be talking about is not just individual action but this kind of place-based action where we see people working together with organizations be it the energy companies the investors the technology companies the local authority the community groups and so on working together to drive change in that community change in that place so individual action can be part of something bigger or enabled by something bigger. I'd agree. And I think linking your comment with phrases, it's about enabling in positive individual action. So if you look at that list that I presented and we'll, we'll share on the web page as well, most of these are out of reach for many people, either because they can't afford it or it's just not practical. So, you know, living car free. Well, okay, that's great. But where's my job? Can I can I work remotely? Mm-hmm. If I can't, can I get public transport? Is that affordable? Um, you know, refurbishment and renovation, Becky, you mentioned, absolutely. But are you going to be able to afford that? And if you can, you know, is the house that you're in, you know, the measures are, are, are practical and affordable? Do you even have authority over that? If you rent the place, then it's not your decision to be made. So you look along that list and the just transition elements start popping out left, right and centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I think I'm quite, quite excited to to talk today about really this, this action that's happening. So one of the things that 
I loved about our last episode was that we moved away from talking about some of the challenges that we're seeing. I think in a lot of our earlier episodes, we've really unpicked some of these kind of key challenges around transport, heat, our networks, flexibility, fuel poverty. You know, we've, we've unpicked a lot of those and we've really delved deep into them. What I loved about our episode last week was that we started to look at some of the solutions, some of the things that are happening on the ground. Okay, we looked on our own doorstep. And, and Fraser had a great chat with some folk in Glasgow that are doing work in Glasgow. And it was really exciting. Today, we're carrying on that theme of looking at stuff that is in the pipeline, that is happening right now around the UK to try and drive forward some of this. And it's it's not easy because, you know, there are challenges at the individual level, but there's also challenges at the local level. So, you know, I'm very excited about flipping that conversation, looking at these changes that are being implemented and moving away from just saying, you know, individual behavior or something that somebody else could be doing and starting to look at all of these different entities working together. So I think we better bring in our guest. Absolutely. Hello, my name's Rob Saunders. I run a big programme for UK research and innovation called Prospering from the Energy Revolution. And what that actually means is trying to show the benefits of smart local energy approaches so that we can get to net zero faster. Brilliant. So welcome to the show, Rob. So it's great to have you here. And of course, you know, we've been talking around a lot of the issues um, to do with smart local energy systems in some of our previous episodes. So we've touched on things around, you know, the challenge with decarbonizing heat, the challenge with decarbonizing transport, some of the challenges around our networks and flexibility and so on. And I think what's quite exciting is these smart local energy approaches are trying to bring all of that together. But maybe before we jump into that, could you perhaps give us a little bit of the history of how all of this came to be and why this is something that the UK is so keen to focus on? Yeah, really good question. A few years ago, we were seeing a variety of things going on. I was running the energy program in Innovate UK. And so we got a good, really good view of all of the innovation that's going on across uh, the whole of the country. And we were seeing the costs of especially a lot of the smaller bits of technology falling really rapidly, like batteries, solar, EVs were coming online. And at the same time, we were seeing lots of digital innovation that in theory meant we could join things up much more efficiently. We could integrate, join up millions of active assets in the energy system in future, rather than the system as we have had it, which has taken power, especially from very big power plants and just fed that to our homes. So we want to try and take advantage of all this low-cost kit, this new digital world, and try and put it together in ways that people might actually want in the future to make net zero happen in a better way and in a, in a faster way and in ways that, that people wanted to buy so, so their lives could be easier and net zero could not just be such a big problem. And so a lot of this all comes together under, I guess, the, the smart local energy approach. But um, And actually, I think we'll start also by saying we'll probably jump into using acronyms a bit. So instead of the mouthful of prospering from the energy revolution, I'm sure we're going to start to say PIFA for anybody. <laughs> that, that yeah, know. we might have to. And, uh, and SLES as a smart local energy system. But, you know, what do you think? So, so in your mind, does a smart local energy system, a SLES, do you think it's really going to be able to address some of these Issues and actually, for people that aren't familiar with this, what when you say SLES, like what is that in your mind? What is a SLES? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think we've been asked a lot: what does SLES mean? What does local mean? Um, what does smart mean? Of course, and I think um, we tried really hard not to define local when we started this program. We thought there'll be a variety of different approaches to what local meant. You know, you could define local as the kind of technical low voltage network area and um, the area that our district network operators run you could define local very much in sort of political boundaries you know the city regions or the local authority areas and you could indeed define local by the sort of organizational structures that exist you know the community energy companies that are operating and the, and the communities that they serve 
and what we've seen in the program is a variety of those of those kind of models you know there are some projects we have that are very much run by a a local authority or a or a city region there are some that are very much bottom up driven by the communities and indeed there are some that are you know being run by the the network operators themselves and trying to optimize the infrastructure and build new services off it so i don't think we have one model of sles but what all of them are doing is trying to put together the technology new technology the, the existing infrastructure and the needs of that local area um in a way that delivers net zero for people in better ways i think that's probably my best summary of it thanks rob uh, an excellent summary and uh, i just wonder from your perspective so these are demonstration projects first and foremost technology demonstration projects for for listeners you know we're, we're looking here at kind of proving something at some meaningful scale and a kind of in a pre-commercial context so you're not putting it into the market as is and letting it run away and see how, whether it survives or not and so a big part of this is about innovation and developing and deploying and proving innovation. So in your eyes, uh, the, the prospering from the energy revolution program and the smart local energy systems, the SLES that it's looking to develop, what are the key innovations that you're hoping to see come through and, and be proven through these, these demonstrators? Yeah. So these are demonstrators, but they're actually largely not technology demonstrators. These are demonstrators of the whole kind of local energy system. And one of the things we realized when we first set the program up was that it's not primarily about new technology. Most of the technology exists. It will continue to be improved through innovation over the coming years. But really, the innovation is about how you put the thing together into a system that enables um, people to get their energy in ways they want it. So. A lot of the innovation is around the way that these things get put together, the intelligence that joins it all up, and how you structure that whole thing to be able to get the right flows of money into it, and how it structures so that it engages people in the right way. Some examples might be from a technological point of view, you know, there is technological in innovation going on. For example, in Energy Superhub Oxford, one of our demonstrators. And they're putting in a huge battery connected to the national grid, 50 megawatts with some very different battery configurations from normal. But one of the key innovations is actually using artificial intelligence systems to automate the trading of that battery into flexibility markets that national grid and others run. So a, a completely new way of trading flexibility using AI. But a lot of the innovation is more on the commercial end, actually. So, for example, up in Orkney, um, the Reflex demonstrator is putting together completely new consumer offers around clean heat, uh, around mobility services, and backing all of that into a kind of flexibility market across the, across the islands. But from a consumer perspective, what's going on is they're, they're, they're having the wiring hidden for them, if you like. And they're just getting an EV service or a, a PV and battery delivered to them, put on their house and getting cheaper bills as a result of all of this. So a lot of the innovation is commercial as well as technical. And, and actually, even further than that, we're seeing innovation in the way that people are engaging communities. So Low Carbon Rougely is trying to redevelop the town of Rougely to take what was a big power station site, build a load of new housing on it, and then integrate that into the, into the town that's there already. And they're doing some fascinating work using local um, theatre companies, amongst others, to engage locals uh, through organisations that are well known in the area to try and get people on board with, a, with that project and get their local buy-in to it. So, you know, I, I think innovation is really in the sort of whole systems we talk about this idea of whole systems, and often people talk about whole systems as you know, the technical whole system, but really we're seeing innovation right across the whole system that involves finance, it involves the way people interact with technology, the way people interact with change in their local area, the kind of services that might be offered in future, um, and the commercial world that, that facilitates all of that. 
So it really is a, a whole system innovation program. Yeah, and one of the things that's always struck me about this is the way that through this program and through these whole system place-based projects, we're seeing collaborations between organizations that have probably never worked together before and never dreamt of working together before. And I mean, I'm just wondering, having spent quite a long time in the innovation space, is this something that you're seeing as maybe key to unlocking some of these bigger changes? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. It's one of the first learnings we got, I think, um, when we saw the consortia of organisations that applied for funding from this programme. You know, typically when we run innovation programmes, we might get two or three organisations working together to to develop something new. And when we saw the applications coming through for PIFA, we saw, you know, often 10 to 15 organisations coming together, often a mix of different technology organisations who are providing bits of the technology system, combined with local authorities, combined with network operating companies, community organisations, academia, and that whole raft of, of, of organisations, all of whom have slightly different objectives to try and serve, but all of whom are trying to find a kind of common purpose in this local energy system to make that gel as a, as a collaboration to deliver the benefits that can arise as an end result. It's really complicated. Um, and I think that's partly why you know, the public funding has been important to stimulate those collaborations and bring those organisations together. You mentioned community organisations there. Some of the, the PIFA projects involve local councils as well. In many people's eyes, you know, local organisations don't get much more local than community organisations at local councils. And there is some kind of recourse to local citizen control and governance of these projects through these avenues. Is this something that has come through these uh, smart local energy systems, that local dimension of local control and ownership and governance? Yeah, very much so. We have community organisations working within at least two of the demonstrators. Um, Project LEO, Local Energy Oxfordshire, has the Low Carbon Hub, which is a big uh, operator of community energy projects in Oxfordshire. And Community Energy Scotland are involved in the Reflex project up in Orkney. And both of those have the local authorities involved as well. Some of the key characteristics of those kind of organisations are that because they're embedded in that local area, they are trusted organisations for the local, the local residents and communities. And I think one of the things we know is that when we're trying to engender change uh, at the scale we're trying to, at the scale and the speed that we're trying to do for net zero, we have to be able to work through trusted organisations because that that is the only way we can uh, uh, persuade people to take a risk with their own lives and do things differently. So we see those kind of organisations as as critical parts of smart local energy systems for the future because of that. I think. Yeah, and I mean, last uh, last episode, Fraser got out and about and talked to some of those Glasgow-based community organisations. And one thing that really struck me from the conversations there was just how you know, how embedded they were in the communities. And it didn't start as a project, you know, it may be now that they're running projects where they're getting, you know, PV on roofs and you can start to see how they could slot into um, this kind of smart local energy system. But where they started wasn't with those technologies. They started with the conversations, the, uh, you know, so social support structures and just like bringing together the voices from in the community. And so it is so powerful as a way of of kind of, bringing up and bringing along that entire community and making sure really everybody can be part of that change. And I just, I find it such a, an exciting part, an exciting dimension of the, the PIFA projects, because obviously when you see community energy organizations acting on their own, which is so often the case, while there is a lot that they can do, there's so much that they can't. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I think um, the role of local authorities in being able to not necessarily control projects in 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 some sense of the word, but to control the the scope of local energy projects so that it involves everybody in the community or everybody in their in their remit, and that includes you know the vulnerable customers, 
and the people who really need to be looked after in our transition to net zero, right? Because it's not always going to be easy to engage everybody quickly. And, you know, we worry, and I, and I know that the regulator and government worries as well, that when we start to change the way our markets work in the energy system, the people that are going to lose out are the people that can least afford to lose out. And so I think the local authorities have a key role in being able to help us to, um, to engage those people, to provide the right solutions for them. Because unless we can figure out our way of doing that, we can't make some of the changes in the market systems that enable a, a, a more rapid change, right? Because there's always going to be political concerns and worries about doing things that are going to um, create issues for vulnerable customers and those in fuel poverty, especially. And um, Rob, one question I, I have is about how engaged local citizens need to be with these smart local energy systems. So often, people, and possibly incorrectly, assume that smart means they can kind of sit back and let the system just intelligently crack on and do what needs to be done in terms of moderating and changing demand and aligning that with supply and the rest. But of course, you know, local, in my mind, is something that inherently brings with it a particular type of active engagement and action. So how how involved will local citizens be with these smart local energy systems in your view in the future? Is it an active engagement or, or are there passive elements as well that can sit back and let the tech just do its job? It's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer is going to be there's going to be a range of those things. Uh, I think, you know, what's going on now at the moment is inherently uh, new and different and therefore it tends to attract people who want to be very active in the market and who want to engage who want to try out new things. I think a lot of our projects, especially our design projects, which are you know not, not actively demonstrating things right now, but are trying to figure out what to do across a city like Coventry or Manchester to make, to make their area net zero from an energy perspective over time. And when you've got that lens on it, you know, their, their responsibility is going to be as much about protecting customers who don't want to engage. Yeah. And making sure they they experience a fair transition as well, and I think that's where the role of smart in self optimizing for customers who don't want to be uh, highly active in the market themselves is going to be absolutely essential. Yeah, I, I find this quite quite fascinating in, in, in that you've you've got this balance of of uh, this awkward balance of customers who want to be actively engaged and maybe want to actively be green on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got folk who maybe just want to sit back and, you know, as long as the lights are left on, they're, they're kind of happy and it's affordable, they're happy. Yet you've got a single smart local energy system that might be connecting both households. And so it's it's got to meet both their needs and meet net zero targets and meet wider social and economic objectives. Uh, so it's a tall order for these systems. Yeah, it is. It, it is indeed. Uh, but, you know, uh, capability to predict how people will, you know, work with technology. Um, and automate some of that. It's just coming on so so fast, and I think the potential of that of that whole realm to help us to optimize our systems and to and to automate out a lot of our worry is 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 really strong. I'm always struck by the the kind of balance between the smart in the technical sense and then smart in the decision-making sense you know so even just take one like one single project so looking at energy super hub oxford because you talked about the the battery and the real like the the testing out of the smart control of that battery and managing it very very carefully but of course another massive dimension to that project is about getting new clean heating systems into people's homes and there's a way where those systems will eventually be smart and have some element of AI. But of course, a big part of that has been engaging with people, helping them make that transition, understand what these very different systems might mean for how they have to use it, but also how it can help them have that kind of better, warmer, more effective home, you know, maybe reduce their bills. So I'm always struck by kind of the way we use the term smart 
<laughs> and I, I agree, Matt. Like my sometimes I jump to the thinking about, you know, smart meaning it's not about the people. But actually, sometimes I think smart can be around helping us make better decisions, like using information in new ways and making better decisions. It is, it's a, it's something like an interesting conversation that I think I've had in the program so far. But te- technology that enables you to act yeah. smarter. Exactly. The smarts being in our heads as well as kind of in the, in the massive AI brains yeah. <laughs> that I have to tell you goes way beyond my, my mind. Um, but anyway, this is a, this is a very exciting and smart program. It's been running a little over two years now, I think. I mean, when you think about where where it's come to now, Rob, from where it started, like what is it that's excited you the most? Um, yeah, we, we started it in 2018. So um, we've been running, uh, yeah, a bit over two years, nearly three years, actually. And we've got about another uh, two years to go. And I think the thing that's excited me the most really is seeing new uh new propositions for for consumers you know actually coming to fruition so seeing new new models emerging uh that enable people to actually buy things in a different way or to engage with the community with the energy system in a, in a different way and i think that is what these projects ultimately are about you know it's about new business models that can pull all of that pull all of that complexity together for consumers and and offer it to them in a way that gives them something better for less, ideally, and drives us towards net zero quicker as a, as a result. And, you know, we're starting to see that in new models like, you know, automated trading of batteries, like new mobility services in Orkney, um, like whole house solutions being developed in, in Southend, and like, uh, you know, new ideas about how to integrate retrofit and making our homes more energy efficient into a, a broader model of energy provision in places like uh, Coventry and Warrington. So, you know, that whole that whole raft of just new models of putting technical, commercial and social innovation all together, I, I think it's hugely exciting. So, Rob, I'm going to end on the sort of billion-dollar question. Uh, and, of course, you know, we're looking forward to uh, net zero targets, 2030, 2035, 2050, 2045. You pick your year, right? But we're, we're looking forward and it's coming fast. So let's, let's say, you know, five, ten years' time, what are your hopes and dreams for this program, how it's going to affect uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, uh, you know, 22 Acacia Avenue, um, you know, and how their lives and their energy it's consumption. It's always Mr. and Mrs. Jones at 22 well, Miss, Acacia Miss, Avenue. Mrs. Are these real people? <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't. I, the Joneses and I have gone way back. But uh, listen, the, the question is the average household, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, how, how their life is going to d- differ. Yeah, okay. Yeah, really good question. And I, I think my hopes for this program are that we can show um, how much better net zero can be for Mr. and Mrs. Jones within the life of this program. And that that will open up local energy systems, smart local energy systems, as a key way of decarbonizing our national system. That might sound a bit weird, but what we have to get our heads around as a, as a, as a nation, as we're decarbonizing the whole, the whole thing, is what is the role of local optimization? How do, we, how do we make local better while also making national better? And that is the key here that I think we can try and get to grips with in the program by proving it in the real world, by understanding the the barriers being faced to better provision of energy to Mr. and Mrs. Jones, we can show how a local system makes it better for the local inhabitant, local residents of that area, but also helps to optimise the whole thing. And by doing that, we can get on our journey to net zero in a better way fundamentally and in a faster way as well. That's what I really hope for, for PIFA. What's good for the local is good for the national and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I hope you'll stick around for our next bit of the show, which is future or fiction. And it is at this stage where I hand over to Fraser. Thanks very much, Matt. I thought that was a brilliant conversation as well. Lots to, lots to take away, lots to think about. So for the uninitiated 
Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every show where I present our guest and our esteemed panel with a brand new technology and they have to decide if they think it's real, i.e. they think it's the future, or if they think I have completely pulled it out of my backside. So this week's technology is a dishwasher where you don't have to rinse before you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, this week's technology... Uh, we're never going to get any government guests again. Yeah, no, you no, don't <laughs> get anybody from really Finnish or Siemens either. <laughs> <laughs> this week's technology is called. Welcome to the Velodrome. That's welcome to the Velodrome. So the Olympics have been on these last few weeks, something that I myself have thoroughly enjoyed, it has to be said. It's a time for breaking records and for innovating new ways of doing things. But how about this? Within the cycling velodrome where the, the, the track events take place, the technical team at the Tokyo Olympics have found a way to harness some of the energy generated by the cycling teams to create a top-up renewable source within the stadium. This energy is captured through various pressure points on the track and using micro wind technology and is used primarily to power things like computers and sensors used for analytics by officials and respective teams. Do we think it's the future, or do we think it's fiction? I have a question. So you're saying that the energy is captured by micro-wind technology? Micro-wind, trackside. What, the tiny little turbines? So like tiny little windmills? Well, no, it's, it's more... I wish I wish I could show you this technology that may or may not. Be I wish you could too, Fred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would make it much easier it's, if you could. It's to be honest, trackside. It's it's not so much turbines. It's much more. I don't know what the name of the shape is. Like sort of coiled. Oh uh, yeah, vertical axis little things like you like like you got An Archimedes screw. The vertical axis little things is that's the exact <laughs> technical term for it, Rob. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I I'm really interested by this because we have had proposals, and indeed, I think. Um, there was a, a company called PaveGen in the UK some time ago that was using something called piezoelectric uh, generation, which is uh, generating very small currents from vibration. And they, were, they, they developed these things that they were putting in pavements and it lit up when people walked on them from the energy generation um, as people walked along bridges or pavements and things like that. So, you know, there is this whole area of uh, harvest of energy harvesting from other activities, just as you describe. So it's quite <laughs> quite an interesting proposition, Fraser. Well, see, I'm even going to stretch that one further. So Fraser's actually had us before on the show with piezoelectrics. Ah. Uh, what he didn't know was that piezoelectrics in skis to make them stiffer was one of the reasons why I even got into engineering in the first place. So <laughs> we had a fun conversation Ah, that. there we go. But earlier on the show, we were talking about using sweat and energy generated from your own sweat to power your smartphone. So my feeling is that if you can generate energy from sweat, why not from the wind that you create when these when like people cycle past? I mean, it must be really fast. Yeah. I can imagine there's a huge amount of um, disturbance in the air. Yeah. So, you know, I can totally believe that this is feasible and possible. I'm just wondering whether it's akin to some of the roadside wind turbines you see. And in fact, I've seen some of this, I follow these various kind of geeky technological innovation LinkedIn accounts. And there's one which is a vertical axis turbine, which is rather similar mm. to what you're talking about, Fraser, yeah, which yeah. Uh, circulates be because it's in the middle central reservation and two different opposing streams of traffic. So it just spins round and round and round, rather similar to what you're saying. So mm. at this stage, I'm going to put my cards on the table because, Rob, I've already got one wrong earlier on here. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go against my gut and I'm going to go future. Okay. Wow. Oh. Okay, Matt's, Matt's gone out. I mean, listening to previous episodes, it, I think it's always looks like a good idea to go against your gut with Fraser's future or fiction. <laughs> yeah. or, and, or, never, or, or failing that, just go against me, do the opposite. Go, yeah, go against yeah. Matt. Well, I'm going against what I'd normally do, Rob, so I'm kind of double bluffing here. So, uh, Well, well I'm, I'm right. Here's, here's what I reckon. I think, you know, there is 
potential there, but it would probably be more of a gimmick than anything massive in terms of energy generation. Oh, don't be fooled by that. We have been fooled by that before. (laughs) I tell you that that has got us on almost every episode. What I'm really worrying about is if you actually wanted to do that, the best place to do it in the velodrome would be on all the warm-up bikes. You know, they've got all those warm-up bikes in the centre. Yeah, on the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the I mean, I just yeah. create, just attach a generator to those and not worry about any of the sort of energy harvesting bit. Yeah, they use that as well. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and no, I, yeah, and I, I agree, also don't think, I don't think the International Cycling Federation or whatever they're called would be very happy about putting new sensors in and wind turbines around the track. So I'm going to say mm. it's fiction. That is a really good point, and I didn't yeah. think about that. Yeah. I think Rigs. you could do this from a technological perspective, but now you've raised that point. Would the Olympics allow you to do that? Would it go against regulations? Ooh. But, but you know, these kind of <laughs> these kind of events, you know, Formula One and cycling, are the, the crucible of pretty much all the technological innovations that we tend to use each day for cycling and driving and all the rest. So yeah, that is yeah, that is true. Oh, I'm so torn with, with this because. <laughs> My heart is saying it's the future, but because I'm on the fence, I'm I'm going to go against Matt. Yeah, sensible. And science sensible. fiction. <laughs> I'd do that. <laughs> so we've got Matt. Are you sticking to? I'm sticking not being. I'm, I'm not being swayed by these two. No, I'm sticking Good on you. the future. Yeah. Good for you. Matt. Good on you. A bit, a bit of principle. That's what we need <laughs> on this show. A bit of spine. So we're sticking to it. We've got a future. Rob and Becky, both fiction. Yeah. Yep. And the answer is, obviously, uh, Matt, it's fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, too wrong. While you rightly point out that both technologies exist, um, as far as I know, and from further investigation, they are not in use in the velodrome. In the Tokyo Olympics. Sorry, Matt. Twice in one episode. That's it's so fun. I need to go lie down in the dark room and just have a little think. You totally did the right thing as well. You went, what would I say? I'll say the opposite opposite of what I did at the beginning of the show, right? So I was thinking, well, of course, you know, it's technically feasible. Somebody's got to be doing it, right? Anyway, there we go. Great invention, though, Fraser. I'll patent it. So I guess that's that's it for another fantastic episode with two future or fictions. What more could you want? So I guess all we need to say is thank you again to Rob for a really illuminating conversation. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember, you can check us out on social media. We're on Twitter. Find us at Local Zero Pod. Join in the conversation there. But until next time, thanks and bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.